In the modern world, more so out there than in here, I think, uh, the line between a preacher and a celebrity has become very blurred, so much that it's hard to tell the difference for many. For some, this has become, because there are some similarities between the two, both get up in front of people and they do their work in public, and people take what they say really seriously and they, and they weigh it, and both have people interested in the details of their private lives and wanting to know them, and both receive a certain amount of honor in society. Uh, but it's even more difficult in the modern world because some preachers are celebrities, in fact, many of you grew up in church, and so you know what a preacher is, and you're used to having a preacher, but for many, their only experience of seeing a preacher do his work is on a TV in front of many people, or on YouTube in front of millions of followers. For many people, the only picture of a preacher they have is someone who has gotten famous from their preaching. And so those lines can begin to become blurred in the modern world, and today we are going to look at a text that helps us sort out the difference that I think most of us in this room already feel, but that the Bible makes really plain. I think, knowing you guys, that most of you would say, yeah, there's a difference between a preacher and a celebrity. That's a felt intuitive difference for most of us. But we might have a harder time if we had to articulate, okay, what exactly is that difference. And that's where I think the Lord will help us today. As he does so, he warns us from falling into some of the patterns that the modern world has fallen into, lifting up preachers on a pedestal and treating them like celebrities. I pray the Lord blesses us as we look into it. The reason we're going to deal with that today is because we're looking at a text where the people who were reading this letter initially were doing exactly that. They were treating their preachers like they were famous people, like they were stars. If you've been here the last several weeks, you've heard the backstory already, and I don't need to tell you again, but I will anyway. Uh, the people in Corinth, they loved their public speakers. The way that we laud our sports heroes and our entertainers who are at the top of their craft, we treat them like the elite in society. They did that for good public speakers. And so the members at the church in Corinth, they were falling to worldliness, becoming like the world. And the way they were doing that was treating the men who had preached the word of God to them as if they were famous. They were even separating into different fanboy groups around which preacher was the best. There's Team Paul, Team Peter, and Team Apollos. And these guys were fighting with each other because they all thought that the one that they liked the most was the best preacher. Not that different from Team Mahomes versus Team Purdy, right? You got your person you're a fan of and you're fighting with the people who are on the other side. They were doing that, except it wasn't playful, it was real, and it was tearing their church apart and destroying it. Paul is writing them here to essentially say, guys, stop it. He is one of the preachers that they are trying to venerate and put on this celebrity pedestal. And he writes to say, don't do that. That is not why we brought the word of God to you. Now, he spends four chapters in this letter talking about it. And today he gets to the heart of that difference. Why is a preacher different from a celebrity? And how do we treat them differently? What really are they? Let's look at verses 5 to 17 in chapter 3 and read Paul's answer. What then is Apollos? 
what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants or he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which has been laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. These are the words of our Lord, and through them, he guards us from treating preachers the way that the world treats celebrities. Now, let me lay the foundation here first. What really is a preacher? A preacher is someone who is called by God to stand before a crowd like you and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. There have been many like this along the way. Before the coming of Jesus, the prophets, who were the preachers of old, stood up and told of the day when he would come. So they preached pointing forward to Jesus. And now that Jesus has come for 2,000 years, men like me have stood up and proclaimed that he has come and he will come again and what the most significant things are that he did. So let me first demonstrate that just by proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ to you. And then I'll ask a few questions about it. The good news of Jesus Christ is that he has come to earth. Uh, You have maybe read about a historical figure named Jesus. Uh, You've read about him probably because there is more historical evidence about his existence than almost anyone else in ancient history. There is so much written about him because he's the most important person who ever lived. Uh, He wasn't just a man, he was God, the maker of the universe, come to earth as a man. So God walking the earth, if you can imagine it. What could be more historic and more important? And he did some things that only God could do when he came. Uh, The first thing he did was live a perfect and sinless life. No one else can do that. I have not done that. I've tried, not done it. Uh, Maybe you've tried to live a sinless life, or maybe you haven't even tried to live a sinless life, but you haven't succeeded. Uh, What we have failed to do, he did. He never once disobeyed God, his Father. And after 33 years of life with perfection and sinlessness, 
He then did the opposite of what we would expect him to do. We would expect him to just take the throne and say, hey, I'm the one who can do it. Everybody come to me. Uh, Instead, he was lifted up on a Roman cross and, and executed and cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? which seems off when you first think about it. We are the ones that ought to be forsaken by God for our sin. But this one who has come and lived sinlessly, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, He does that because he offers himself as a substitute for his people. Uh, The the sins of all of his people are put upon him and, and the wrath of God stored up for our sin, which is poured out upon him. So he cries out in agony, and then he breathes his last. Now that's significant. Then on the third day, he did something else that no one could do. No one else could die in the place of sinners because no one else is perfect. No one else has the power to raise themselves from the dead, but that is what he did on the third day. Uh, So by the power of the Spirit upon him, by his power as God himself, God his Father raised him from the dead. He got up in a glorified, perfected body, not some zombie Jesus that was dead three hours ago and looked like a character on The Walking Dead, like glorified, risen, radiant Christ. For 40 days, he appeared to his disciples, the 120 or 150 or so followers that there were, and several hundred other people. This has been written down in history. It's been verified. People saw the risen Christ. He did that to guarantee for all of his people resurrection from the dead and eternal life. He was raised in an imperishable, perfect body. And he then went up into heaven and he's ascended he's up in heaven now ruling the universe for the good of his people and he promises i'm going to come back and when i do i'll raise all the dead i'll judge the living and the dead there will be a great separation forever and ever made on that day my people he says to spend eternal life with me in perfect resurrected bodies like mine with no sin or suffering forevermore now that will happen when he comes back But until then, from the time he left to the time he comes back, he calls men like me to tell you what he has done and to call you to put your faith in him. His arm stands open until he comes back or until you die. His offer stays open to you. Put your faith in him and you will find in him forgiveness of sins. You will find resurrection of the dead. You will find a restored relationship with the God who made you where you are the creature again and he is God again and you can worship him in a trembling heart with no fear of any judgment. He will give to you good ways that you can walk in for your whole life. All this and more for anyone who will come to him in faith and say, Jesus, save me. So my call to you and his call to you is come to him in that way. Put your faith in him and say, Jesus, save me. Now, that's the good news of the gospel. That's the message that preachers proclaim. Now, I wonder, as I walked through that with you, did that feel different from what you experience when you watch a video of a concert on TV and there's a celebrity up there. That felt different, didn't it? Did that feel different from maybe the last time you watched the Grammys or the Emmys and saw people receiving awards? Did it maybe feel different from a few weeks ago when maybe you watched Patrick Mahomes and Travis Kelsey hold up the Super Bowl trophy? That felt different, didn't it? 
What, what is that difference, and why is that different from the kinds of things we see in the world in entertainment culture? That's what Paul is getting into here. So let's walk through it. Let's see. What, what is the difference between one who proclaims the message of God and one who just kind of stands as a famous person in culture? The main point of this whole text, the spirit of the whole thing, maybe the spirit of the whole section, is in verse 5. He asks, what even is Apollos? What is Paul? And he's asking those questions dismissively. Those are not rhetorical. What is Apollos? What is Peter? Well, I will tell you. That's not what he's doing. He's saying, what even is Apollos? Who cares about Paul? That's the spirit with which he's asking these questions. And then he answers with what they are. They're servants through whom you believed. So the Corinthians are lifting him up like they're stars, and he's saying, we're not stars, we're, we're servants. And that's the main point of this whole thing, the first point I'm going to walk you through today. Preachers are servants and not stars. Preachers aren't stars, they're servants. To just say it really simply, when someone is up in a platform like this, or behind a pulpit, or has an LCD screen behind them, and they are proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, that person is not the star of the show. They are a servant of the star. Everything that they are doing is the same as what every other good faithful preacher does. They point upward to someone else. This is why Paul is so frustrated that people are putting him and Peter and Apollos on a pedestal. He say, hey, we're, we're all working together. The one that plants and the one that waters, they're one. We're trying to point you up to someone else. Look at him. He is the star. Look at Jesus Christ. So the first point today is that preachers are servants and not stars. Now that's the main message of this whole thing. Before we get into some of the specifics, uh, let's just ask a few questions about what that very concept might mean for us here at Calvary. Uh, maybe the most significant thing is that it doesn't entirely matter who is in this pulpit preaching the gospel to you as long as he is a faithful servant of Jesus Christ. So there's something negotiable here, and there's something not negotiable. The negotiable thing is that it doesn't have to be any one person. Next week, it doesn't have to be me. It could be Paul. It could be Jerry. It could be a guest preacher. Right? Who it is is interchangeable. And he's saying there, what's, what's Apollos? What's Paul? It doesn't matter who it is, but what is non-negotiable is that he must be a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, and so he must be proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ faithfully from the scriptures. So the man is disposable, right? It could be anybody else. The message is what is not disposable. That's why we can have confidence if the Lord were to take me from you tonight for a sudden illness. I hope you would be a little bit sad, but the church can go on, Right? And because the, what's non-negotiable is the message proclaimed, not the person who is proclaiming it. That speaks to some of the questions we have as well. Uh, when we see celebrities lifted up and lauded in culture, uh, they make million-dollar paychecks, many millions, some of them are billionaires. Uh, they are just lauded to the point of, of worship, really, sometimes. Uh, I can remember when I was a kid 
Michael Jackson was on tour and he came through, I think he came to Orlando, maybe where I live. I remember seeing on the news uh, young teenage girls, like 13, 14, 15 years old, screaming and some of them fainting on camera because his bus was 500 feet away and they could see Michael Jackson's bus, right? There's that veneration of celebrity. Happens in today with Beyonce and Drake and, and Taylor Swift and all the rest of them. We see that. We see the uh, almost irrefutable influence that they have over culture. And then in our hearts, we look at pastors and preachers and we say, okay, I think that is like a position of, you know, honor in society. I should honor that, but... It's probably not supposed to look like that, right? It can get a little confusing. Well, when we hear Paul clarify here, uh, what even is Paul? What even is Apollos, right? The person isn't important. Then we're free to throw that celebrity picture out and say, okay, what does the scripture ask us to do here? And the answer is just a much more modest version of affection and honor in the church, right? Scripture says to honor your leaders, follow them. Uh, Scripture says to take care of them, but it's a much more modest version of the same thing. So it gives us an answer to a confusing question like that. It also shows us the way that pastors should act among their people, the way that preachers should act among their people. Uh, Anytime you meet a preacher you've seen on YouTube or the person you see preaching in the pulpit, you should walk away feeling Oh, that's a person like me. Because the Lord has not chosen to put his gospel in these other level people who are like stars in the sky that we cannot access. He has chosen to put his good news in earthen vessels. And that's why many of you, I've been in your house or you've been in my house or we have each other's phone numbers or you can call the office and get an appointment whenever you want to. Uh, That's why if we talk in person, I hope I just sound like a normal person. And it should be the same way if you meet John Piper or David Jeremiah or any preacher out there. The Lord loves to put his words in normal, frail people like us. And so the way you should come away from that conversation is, oh yeah, that, that's a holy man of God. Like He loves the Lord, but he's also a person like me. He's also down to earth. And it means that pastors don't have any business trying to be a big deal or build a big following. It can be tempting when you do this in front of people to go on social media and use those algorithms and try to make as big a following for yourself as you can. But we're not stars. It's not what we're doing, right? We're here to proclaim the word of God to the people that God gives to us. So several ways that works out in the concrete culture of a church, and that's why some things feel the way that they do here. One way Paul will get into, though, next. If we understand that preachers are not stars, they're servants, that will change how we look at the way the church grows, because we see the celebrity model out there, right? We know what it's like when a football team finds a star, and then the, they're the franchise player, and they build the team around that star, and then the star takes off. That's what's happening with the Chiefs right now. It happened with the Lakers and the Bulls and so many teams. Uh, we have seen the way that celebrity movements build around the person. The Beehive is built around Beyonce, and the Swifties are built around Taylor Swift. Uh, we see how social media followings are built on a person and their personality, And it can be tempting to think that that's how the church grows too, right? On the back of a person and their personality. But Paul here says something very different. The church grows 
on spiritual power, not on star power. Other movements grow on star power, but not the church. It grows on spiritual power. To say this, he uses this extended analogy in verses 6 and 7 of plants in a field. He says, I planted and Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Now, for any of you who have gardened or any of you who have worked in farming, you'll be familiar with this. Everyone in Corinth would have been familiar with this because everybody did agriculture then. Uh, You might go out under the employment of someone else and cast the seed into the ground. But what you can't do is make that seed sprout and germinate. And you know that. You just cast the seed. And then the next person will come by and water the seed and water the little plants that are sprouting out. But what they can't do is tug on those sprouts and make them grow faster. Now, you pull it out of the ground if you do that, right? So people do real work, and they make a difference, but the one who gives the growth is always God. This is a tension that every gardener lives with. You grow your cucumber plant, you weed it, you feed it, you water it, you've planted it, and then it produces cucumbers, and you cut one off, and you take it home, and you slice it up, and you put it on the plate, and then you say, God thank you for this cucumber, right? Even though you did the work. Why? Because God has to give the growth or the fruit never comes. So people do real work along the ways and it matters that the one who planted casted out the right seed and it matters that the one who watered did it right and put the right amount of water on there. Yet, it is God who gives the growth. That translates perfectly over to the church. Whoever first proclaimed the gospel to you as an individual, they planted that seed of the gospel in your heart, and it mattered that they proclaimed to you the real gospel and that they put it right in there just right. And then along the way, since then, many have watered that seed and you have grown, and it mattered that the people who watered that seed did it right and watered you with the life-giving water of the scriptures. The Lord loves to use human workers to do this, yet... Who grew that within you? It was the Lord who did the growth. That works at scale, too. The Lord grows churches. Yes, he does it through the preached word. He does it more often when the word is preached faithfully and fervently. But the preachers aren't the ones who give the growth. God is the one who gives the growth. This is a tension that Jesus speaks to when he's talking with Simon Peter. He asks his disciples, uh, who do people say I am? And they have all kinds of answers. Uh, prophet, Elijah, uh, we don't know. They say all kinds of stuff. And he says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter speaks up, and this is the first time in the Gospels he's acknowledged as the Christ by a person who's looking at him. He says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. I mean, it's like an ultimate Sunday school answer moment, right? It's like I asked the question, and Peter, you nailed it. You got it right. He got it so right that the Lord says, I'm going to give you a new name, right? Not like a piece of candy for getting that right. You're getting a new name for getting that question right. Your name has been Simon, but I'm going to name you Peter, and that means the rock. And on this rock, I'm going to build my church. So who does Jesus say? builds the church. He does. On this rock, I will build my church. The question people have argued over is, okay, well, what's the rock? Uh, The Roman Catholics have taught it's Peter who's the rock. He was the first pope, and all the popes who come after him are the rock upon whom the church is built. 
But if you listen carefully to the way Jesus says this, Peter gives that confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, on that rock, I'm going to build my church. That's the stone, that is the cornerstone and foundation of the church. Not the man confessing it, but the confession that Jesus is the Christ. So Jesus builds his church, he gives the growth, and he does it on the verbal proclamation that he is the Christ. That helps us see that the church isn't built on preachers per se, but it is built on the message that they preach. That's the difference we must see. It's not an indispensable man in the pulpit. It's an indispensable message in the pulpit. If you keep the man and lose the message, you lose the power. If you keep the message and lose the man, you keep the power. On that rock, Jesus will build his church. So that speaks to what we should expect out of our preachers. What we should not expect is that he will have some sort of Midas touch that will magically bring everyone in here in the way that other faithful preachers cannot do uh, because he's not a star, right? He's just a servant. Uh, What we should expect him to do is proclaim that message faithfully and fervently and then expect the Lord to build his church upon that message because we plant, we water, but God gives the growth. Okay. So the second point was that the church grows on spiritual power, not star power. One important thing that means for us is that you have as much of a role in the church's growth as I do. Now, I preach the word and I pray. I'm dedicated to prayer in the ministry of the word. But that same God who must pour his spirit out for us to see a mighty movement of God, you have access to him as well. And the great revivals in the history of the church have not come when the pastor knelt alone on his knees and prayed tirelessly for the church to be revived. They happened when groups of people gathered together, when the church all together said, we are going to pray that the Lord would revive us. Now, if the preacher has to be a star, then let's just put it all on him and he'll be the one who will bring the growth. But if it grows on spiritual power... Oh, how much power there would be if we would all gather together and pray that the Lord would do a mighty work here. That's why I'm so encouraged to see that there are people who want to gather with me at 9 o'clock every Wednesday morning. When a lot of people are at work and can't even be there, there are people who want to gather with me and pray that God would bless our church. Uh, That the deacons have initiated, some of you know this, some of you know, the deacons have initiated a prayer meeting just among them Uh, at 8.30 every Sunday morning for this worship service. They prayed that God would be here and speak powerfully through this word. God works when the people get together and pray like that. That's in part because the church grows on spiritual power. It doesn't grow on star power. So the more we take the focus off of the person preaching and the more we put it on the Lord and plead with the Lord together, God, will you bless us, the more power there is in the church's growth. So, Let's move on to a third point. I've said a few times that he needs to proclaim it faithfully and fervently. Uh, What does it mean for him to proclaim it faithfully? That's what Paul gets into next. 
Now, he does something here that Westerners do not like. He switches metaphors. So he's been talking about plants in a field, and all of a sudden, he's going to switch to we're stones in a building. And so you're just going to have to hang with him for that, even though it's tough to jump from one picture to another. You can see this transition in verse 9, if it helps you make it over there. He says, we are God's fellow workers in both pictures, the preachers are the workers. You are God's field, God's building. He is moving from field to building. Okay, so you were a field with plants. Now you are a building with living stones, gold bricks joined together, God's holy building where he dwells. And he goes into this extended picture for six verses in which he says that the gathered people of God, the the church, the local churches and the church all together are being built as a temple for God. This is an Old Testament picture, actually a couple Old Testament pictures combined. So, in the days of King Solomon, the Lord commissioned Solomon to build a temple. And he said, this is how I want you to build it. Here are the specifications. Here are the materials that you were to use. And it was to be built with the finest craftsmanship and the finest materials. If you had walked into that thing, I mean, there are renderings of it on YouTube, and it's just amazing. Uh, gold all around, and it's solid gold all over the place. Beautiful jewels, uh, beams like the beams we have here, except you can see how those are many pieces of wood put together. And in Solomon's temple, the beams were single trunks, the cedars of Lebanon, just glorious. Uh, Incredible construction. And it had to be done with good materials. After it was built, Solomon dedicated it, and the Lord came and dwelled in the temple, and fire and smoke, and everyone was trembling in awe before him because God's presence was there in the temple. Well, Paul says that now, the temple's gone, and the Lord dwells in his people. He dwells in us, not just in you as an individual, but us as we gather together. We gather in the name of the Lord, his presence is here. And so that means, as Peter says in his letters, that you are like living stones being built together into a holy temple. If you can imagine that temple made of gold bricks and beautiful celestial gems and rubies and diamonds and things like that all in the walls, each of you is like one beautiful gold brick or one diamond that big just there set into the wall. And God's workers through the proclamation of his word, are putting you in place and each of you becoming a brick or a stone in that temple. That's a holy building, and it, is, it speaks well of us that that is what the Lord wants to make us into. Now, part of the idea is that through our preaching, we are building that temple as people come into the kingdom. It is possible to build it with the right stones, the good materials, the beautiful cedars of Lebanon, and the gold and the gems. It is also possible, if you want to speed up the construction, to use cheaper materials like straw and and hay. You want to cut some corners, man, you can build a roof out of straw real fast, much faster than you can out of gold bricks because it's easier to get a hold of. And Paul says that the same thing happens in the building of the church. It is much easier to just draw a crowd with whatever and get them excited about whatever 
than it is to one by one lead people to Jesus and then see them slowly mature into mature believers. And so Paul says there's that temptation to just build kind of a useless crowd that's not true believers. You're not really attracting them to the gospel. You're not really growing them in Christ. And when we do that, it's like building the temple with with straw and with hay instead of gold bricks. He says elsewhere in Colossians 1 that the goal of preaching is to mature believers in Jesus. Uh, The goal is to present everyone who hears mature in Christ when he comes. And that means if you're not a believer in Jesus, the goal is that you would become a believer in Jesus. And once you are a believer in Jesus, it's that you would mature Sunday by Sunday every time you hear a Bible-based sermon. So that when he comes back, men like me can take you and present you to Jesus and say, look at this mature believer, right? You gave me one talent and I've given you two, we can say to the master. And that means then that those beautiful stones, those living bricks of gold and jewels in the temple, what they represent is maturing believers, When your preaching builds the temple with maturing believers, that's like gold and stones in the temple. When your preaching builds a crowd of just people who maybe think they came to Christ, maybe not, you're kind of preaching Jesus, you're kind of not, and they don't ever really grow, then you're filling the temple with straw and hay. Paul says Jesus is going to come back In our translation, in verse 3, it has, the day will disclose it, and the word day is capitalized. That's because it's not just a random day. It's the day when Jesus returns and the great judgment comes here. Uh, Scripture speaks of the return of the Lord as a refiner's fire. Judgment will happen when he comes, and judgment begins in the house of God. So one of the first things we can expect to happen at the final return of Christ is that it will be made evident the earnest, maturing believers in the churches and those who were just there for some other reason. The living stones will be separated from the hay and the straw because the fire will burn up the hay and the straw. And so if there is a megachurch that has 10,000 people in it right now and only eight of them are earnest believers, there will be eight living stones left that day. If there is a church that has 500 people and 495 of them are earnest believers maturing in Christ, it would be 495 left that day. And you can just put that all along every size of church. When that day comes, it will be made evident what that preacher was doing. Was he building maturing believers in the house of God or was he just gathering a crowd? Kind of tough to tell today, isn't it? But the day will come and it will be disclosed. When it does come, he says, each will receive a reward. Verse 14, if the work that anyone has done, has built on the foundation survives, he'll receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he'll suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So the reward comes for the quality of the work, not for the size of the following. And that's yet another way that preachers are just very different from celebrities. So our third point I built up to it is that preachers will be rewarded for the quality of their work, not for the size of their following. Now a celebrity on, let's say, YouTube, 
He's going to be judged by how many followers he has on YouTube, right? And it does not matter if those followers, if there's four million of them, it doesn't matter how many of them are good people. It doesn't matter how many of them are robots and not really people, right? All that matters is the number. How big is their following? But for preachers, what matters is what are they building? Are they building living stones in the holy temple? Are they building maturing believers in Christ? Or are they building some other movement? That's what their reward is going to be based on. The coming judgment will expose whether our preaching was building up believers or just drawing a crowd. That means we know a little bit more of what to expect out of our preachers. We should expect him to proclaim the gospel, right? The foundation is Jesus Christ. We should expect him to do that with biblical truth, the way that Solomon had to follow the instructions given him for the temple. He should do these things the way the Bible tells him to. We should expect him to preach fervently and wisely, and the result should be maturing believers in Christ. It doesn't matter so much how big the room gets. It matters, are the people hearing it, those newcomers coming in, are they growing in Christ? That way we can present everyone mature in Christ. All right, so that's what he has to say about preachers. We're servants, we're not stars. The church grows on spiritual power, not star power. Preachers are rewarded for the quality of their work, not the size of their following. Now, the people in Corinth, they had treated their preachers like celebrities, and it was tearing the church apart. Just ripping that thing into many sections because they're fighting over who's the best. And so now that Paul has their attention with this metaphor of the church being God's holy temple, now he turns it on them and reminds them, okay, if this building is holy and you guys, not you guys, but the Corinthians are tearing the church apart and destroying it, you're destroying God's holy temple. And so he gives some strong words to them in verses 16 and 17. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. So this would leave them trembling. Oh, we we are dismantling not just any building but the holy temple of God all these Old Testament stories would come to their mind the holy things of God were serious in the Old Testament the ark of the covenant that carried the presence of the Lord if you touched it you died a man named Uzzah was carrying it on a pole and it slid and he steadied it with his hand and immediately he died People went into the temple wrongly, not the way they were supposed to, and immediately their lives were taken from them. Uh, A man named Achan tried to take some of the bounty from a battle that was dedicated wholly to the Lord, and he died as a result. Those things that are holy to God, you don't tamper with those things. That was deeply impressed on the hearts of these people. And so Paul has the ground to say, if this gathering is God's holy temple and you start tearing that thing apart, 
we don't mess with the holy things of God. This is an important building that you are tearing down. Now that sits with us as a warning, right? It's easy to think that the church is just people and friends and, hey, I'm familiar with all of them. No big deal, right? But the Lord says, no, this is my holy temple. Part of the principle he's appealing to here is that wise words from righteous people give life and build up, and foolish words from wicked people tear down. It's a big concept in the Proverbs. They say things like, by the blessing of the upright, a city is exalted, but the mouth of the wicked, it is overthrown. So like whole cities can go up and down based on whether people are speaking righteously or speaking wickedly. Or they say, with his mouth, the wicked man will destroy his neighbor, but by the knowledge of the righteous, they are delivered. So even an individual can be given life and lifted up or destroyed and hurt by good, wise, righteous, true words or not truthful, destructive lies and gossip and slander. And the hard thing about it is that it's a whole lot easier to destroy stuff than it is to build stuff. Right? Uh, that temple that took Solomon years to build took Nebuchadnezzar a day to destroy and churches can be built up with faithful sermon after faithful sermon, a faithful Sunday school lesson after faithful Sunday school lesson, and prayer after prayer. But it is so much easier to tear them down with a little gossip, a couple of lies about somebody, and a little bit of bullying and a little bit of slander. So much easier to tear down than to build up. And so Paul warns them, you guys keep fighting like this. You're going to tear apart God's holy church, and God's going to destroy you. Now, with an image that scary, be irresponsible, I just left you scared, and then we all just stopped, right? What exactly is he warning us against? He's warning us against the kinds of destructive talk that the Proverbs in the New Testament warn against. Uh, the New Testament says, do not let any unwholesome talk, which means corrupting talk, come out of your mouth but only that which is helpful for building up. Right? So the kind of speech that builds up the church, strengthens the relationships in the church, builds up the people in the church and matures them in Christ, that's the kind of stuff we should be saying. The kind of speech that harms people, uh, the kind of speech that tears good relationships apart. You say something to one person to turn them against another person. The kind of speech that tears the church down, like gossiping or lying about someone or exaggerating someone's wrong or speaking maliciously about someone or bullying someone into doing something they shouldn't do. The kind of stuff that tears churches down. That's what he says destroys not just a building, but those gold bricks and those beautiful sapphires all around the temple. So that's what he's warning us against, malicious speech. You can read about much of it in the Proverbs. The key question is, are my words helping people or are my words hurting people? Right? People will ask sometimes when it seems helpful to talk about a thing, but it's, oh, I don't want to gossip. They will ask, is this gossip? Am I gossiping right now? Uh, I've heard many of you ask that before. The answer comes down to, does it help people or does it hurt people? If it's going to hurt someone's reputation needlessly, then that's gossip. 
If it's going to bless those who hear and help them repair relationships and build up the church of God, then it's not gossip. Tough to tell the difference, but the Lord sees the heart and the Lord knows why we are saying what we say. So that's our last point today, and it leaves us warned. What I want to tell you is that if the Spirit has convicted you over that, if you're thinking, oh, mercy, I have done that. I've hurt people with my words. I've hurt the church with my words. Uh, Paul doesn't write those words to the Corinthians to condemn them. He will actually say later, I'm writing this to give you life, not to condemn you. Uh, And he, he has the same heart, the Spirit has the same heart for you. The Lord would say words like that to you, and if they convict you, what he wants you to know is that his arms are wide open for you to turn to him and say, Lord, this is what I have done. Will you forgive me and will you restore me? He didn't write that to condemn you. He wrote that to give you life. Take that life. Turn back to him and receive his forgiveness if you are convicted. All right, so there are some ways that the church is different from the world. Ironically, the celebrity world is full of that kind of gossip and backbiting and that kind of trash talk, isn't it? And the church is called to be holy and separate from that. We don't treat our leaders like they're on another level, nor do we act with that kind of backbiting and destructive talk. May God use these words to make for himself more and more a holy people who are given to him. Let's pray.